Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. Acts chapter 14, verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided, and the city at this time was led by a group called the Demos, kind of citizens that led, and they didn't really, they were kind of not under Roman rule at this point. So the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews, who were opposing and spreading these lies, and some with the apostles, who were messengers of the Lord. In Matthew ten thirty four, Jesus said, Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. you remember the rest of the passage? For family will be against family when it comes to who Jesus is and whether or not they will live for him. That's the issue. Verse 5. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, so the gossip grew, rumors do weed, and now it turned into violence. They concocted a plan But they, that is Paul and Barnabas, became aware of it and fled. Now, it's one thing to be brave. It's another thing to be stupid. So they decided, you know what? We've we've heard that these people are after our lives, and we're going to leave. And so they fled. One famous local evangelist said his favorite verse in the Bible is Matthew 10.23. Jesus said, whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. That's his favorite verse. Anyway, John Wesley once encountered a village bully when their carriages met upon a narrow road. The bully knew Wesley and disliked him and would not give him any leeway, staying in the middle of the road. John Wesley cheerfully gave the man the entire road, even though he had to turn into a ditch. As they passed, the bully said, quote, I never turn out for fools. And Wesley, all five foot two of them responded, I always do. <laughs> so sometimes you got to turn away and move on where there are greener pastures. And so they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby, and the surrounding region. So if you take a peek up at the map, you can see that the, all of this is close together in uh, ancient Asia Minor. So... They have now gotten the boot of disfellowship in back-to-back cities, okay? Booted out of this city, booted out of that city. Joys, because many people believe, but trials, because a lot of people, not only did they dislike them and poison people against them, but they were at a contract out on their lives. Now, when you were making travel plans for the next city, what would you say? You know what? Maybe we should take a city off. You know, maybe... I'm I'm sure the Lord will understand. We preach in that city, boot it out. We preach in this city, a contract on our lives. Maybe we should take a little vacation. I need a vacation. I don't know about you, Barnabas. I I know you're the son of encouragement. I need a vacation. Let's take one city off. But no, verse 7 says, and there they continued to preach the gospel. That's bravery. And at Lystra, there was sitting a certain man without strength. Now, Lystra apparently didn't have a synagogue, so they couldn't go there. So I think they just started some street preaching. There was a certain man without strength in his feet, verse 8, lame from his mother's womb. He had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him, and had seen that he had faith to be made well, verse 10, said with a loud voice, Stand upright, 
on your feet. Uh, Dr. Barnhouse comments. There have been numerous times in my own ministry when, while I was speaking from the pulpit, I've seen a response on some particular face in the audience, and I knew the Holy Spirit had began a work of grace in that person. Frequently, after the meeting was over, that person would come to me and tell me that at that precise moment, he knew, he just knew, that Christ had died and risen again for him, and that he was truly born again. Some years ago, there was a person that died in a well-known company, and I was asked to do the service, and a bunch of the employees from this company came to this memorial service. And so there were probably 50 to 75 people, all from the same company. And I began to preach the gospel and memorialize this person, and I saw a young man in the back. He looked like he was about 30 years old, and he was just tracking and locked into everything that I was saying. I could just see it on his face. And so when the service was over, there was a big line and kind of a food buffet line. And I happened to be standing in that line fairly close to the young man. And he walked up to me and said, can I talk to you, Pastor? Can I talk to you over here? And I said, sure you can. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, I'm a backslidden Christian. He said, I knew the Lord. I was walking with the Lord. And I left and I've done all this dumb stuff. And I've been away for so long. And as you were preaching... The Lord was just grabbing my heart with verse after verse. And one verse that I had shared, I said uh, from Jesus' own lips, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And so this young man said, I want to make my soul right with the Lord. And we, off to the side of the buffet line, he rededicated his life to Jesus Christ. And I could tell during the service that the Lord had done a work in his life and he approached me and praise God, he recommitted his life to Christ in the face of death and difficulty. And Paul said with a loud voice, seeing the work of grace in this man's face, he said, stand up on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Now keep in mind, he had never walked before. I remember hearing Chuck Smith now home with the Lord said that one day he was preaching and and people uh, came up, they had their grandpa in a wheelchair and they wheeled him up and they wanted prayer. They wanted Chuck to pray for him. So Chuck just said he got a moment of a, a boost of faith, a gift of faith from the Lord and grabbed the guy's hand and pulled the grandpa out of the wheelchair. And the grandpa was walking around and the kids told Chuck later that they had wheeled grandpa up because he had a cold and they wanted Chuck to pray over his cold. (laughs) He said, walk! You never know what the Lord will do, right? And so he leaped up. This is similar to what happened to John and um, Peter at the temple. Remember, They, they preached silver and gold we don't have in the name of Jesus Christ rise. And so this man is leaping around. You know, he's never walked before. Can you imagine how happy this guy's got to be? He's, I'm sure, hollering, yipping, you know, praising, whatever. And when the multitude saw, verse 11, what Paul had done, they raised their voice. So no synagogue. You can't start from the Old Testament. So God just provides another way. Rather than using Old Testament prophecy from the platform of people who already believed in the Old Testament scriptures, God does a healing to grab the people's attention. So God can adjust to whatever circumstances are going on. But the multitudes, when they saw what Paul had done, 
they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language. Now, I would assume that Paul and Barnabas didn't know Lyconian, so it was probably hidden to them. They said, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Now, is that a wrong interpretation of what's happening? Yes. Now, there's an old uh, story that was around in this region. It's actually been discovered in uh, some inscriptions. There's literary evidence of this particular stone, uh, this particular story found on, stone, on a stone altar uh, near Lystra. Here's the story. The Roman poet Ovid told of an ancient legend in which, and this is about 50 years before Paul's time, in which Zeus and Hermes from Greek mythology came to the Phrygian hill uh, country disguised as mortals and they were seeking lodging. After being turned away from a thousand homes, they found refuge in the humble cottage of an elderly couple. In appreciation for the couple's hospitality, the gods transformed their, their little college, cottage into a temple with a golden roof and marble columns. A flood sent by the vengeful gods then destroyed all the houses of the inhospitable people who would not receive these gods who were dressed as humans. And they were killed. Zeus and Hermes allowed the elderly couple to serve as priest and priestess and then upon their deaths turned the elderly couple into trees to stand in front of the temple of Zeus. The ancient legend may be the reason that the people treated Paul and Barnabas as gods. After witnessing the healing of the cripple, they did not want to make the same mistake as their ancestors. <laughs> Didn't sound really good, you know, being destroyed by vengeful gods. And I don't know, I'm not sure it sounds too good to have your little cottage made into a temple and become a tree for all eternity either. But anyway, they thought, hmm, this is probably a good uh, couple of guys to appease and make sure we're in good graces with them. So they began calling Barnabas Zeus, verse 12, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. He, uh, Hermes, uh, in Greek mythology, was the son of Zeus by Maya. He was the Greek god of oratory or eloquence. So it gives you some indication about Paul. Paul tended to be the chief speaker in different regions, and he would attract the crowd by preaching the gospel. And Barnabas probably was less vocal, but maybe more impressive looking. And so they started to call uh, Paul Hermes as the chief speaker, and Barnabas was called Zeus. Now, it might not be that bad to be called a Greek god for a while. I mean, you don't have to print business cards, but you know, eh, Zeus, eh, Zeus. I mean, how would you be feeling, right? Would you be a little tempted? Can you see the enemy working? The enemy's trying to get people off track away from Jesus to this other nonsense. And the priest of Zeus, and all the time, I don't think Paul and Barnabas know what's going on. I think they just see a bunch of happy people, you know, treating them well. And they're thinking, this is cool. These people must be in touch with the gospel. But the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, 13, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. They thought, you know what, we're going to offer a sacrifice to these gods who have come down. What was the reaction of the missionary, missionaries? They, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, and somebody probably gave them the interpretation, hey, uh, I don't know if you know what's going on. These people are about to sacrifice to you. They think you're Zeus and you're Hermes. What? 
And so they went out, and here's what the Jews would do. When they heard of it, they tore their clothes. This was a, a sign of sacrilege and, and horror. They tore their clothes, and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out. And they said, men, why are you doing these things? And if I could translate, no, don't do that. Do not sacrifice to us, right? Sacrilege, a way, tearing your clothes, righteous horror. I heard a story of a man once uh, came across an advertisement in the newspaper which said, new Porsche, $50. After paying for the car, he asked why the woman had sold it at such a low price. She said, well, my husband ran off with his secretary and sent me a telegram saying, sell the Porsche and send me the money. And so that is uh, tearing your clothes in horror and sacrilege. And Anyway. And they said, men, why are you doing these things? 15, we are also men of the same nature as you were human and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things. The word vain means empty. To a living God, move away from the dead to the living who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, because this is probably a largely Gentile area, no synagogue, they appeal rather than appealing to the scriptures. In this case, they appeal to natural revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no voice or person, I'm paraphrasing, where their voice is not heard. That's Psalm 19. You can look at verses 1 through 4. Every day, day and night, the natural creation testifies that God is there. And Romans 1 says, just by creation alone, man is what? Without excuse. He is inexcusable before God because day and night, the natural revelation of the cosmos give the sign that there is a creator. Watch an eagle in flight. Go somewhere where you can see more than a few stars. Amen. <laughs> you got to kind of go out of town to do that. The oceans, snow-capped mountains. You ever gone to one of those places with a big aquarium and seen the complexity and variety of what God has made? Ever looked in the mirror and looked at your eye and marveled at the creator's intelligence? He's the awesome chemist. He made six million forms of plants and animals, reproduction, self-healing of the body, day and night. The natural creation testifies. Folks, there's no atheists. Atheists simply suppress the truth that is all around them. And not only is it external, Romans 1 says it's also internal. They have the witness of their conscience. They have the Imago Dei in Latin, the image of God written on their very souls, on their DNA. They know, but they suppress it. So Paul doesn't have to do much explaining. He just says, God, this living God made the heavens and the earth Psalm 115 says, their idols, that is, of idolaters, are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. 
They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them, Psalm 115, verse 8, will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Idols are not just something that you kind of say, oh, whatever. If you make them, you will become like them. And idols, with the word vain, are empty, worthless, and devoid of truth. And if you follow them, that's what you will become. Empty, worthless, and devoid of truth. And you might say, Pastor, that's, that's harsh. You know what? That was me. I was driving around in a Maserati at about 20 years old. Had two turbos on it. And I sang the song, My Maserati does 185. When it's not broken, I can actually dig a drive. Because that's what it was. It's broken all the time. Fro- frozen turbo. This, but I wanted to drive it because I look cool. Yeah, look at me. And then I'd go home. thing was burning a hole in my pocket. But my soul was empty. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And Paul says, In the generations gone by, 16, God permitted all nations to go their own ways. God put up with sin and idolatry for a long time, focused his efforts on Israel and wanted Israel obviously to be a light to the Gentiles. And yet he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I wonder how many unbelievers, when they watch a sunset, say, you know what? God is good. What an awesome, majestic thing the sun is. Just the right distance from the earth and the moon to control the ocean tides. Just the right distance away. Isn't it nice that we have a meal today? I mean, I wonder how many unbelievers, the next time they go to another meal, think of pausing and saying, you know what, maybe we should give thanks. A creator supplied all this stuff. Food and water and sunshine and rain. Glad times, Jesus says. Matthew 5.45, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God hasn't left himself without a witness. Every time your crops get rain and your sun feels the, your, your face feels the sun, stop. Count your blessings. And even in saying these things, verse 18, with difficulty restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. The people were kind of listening, but they weren't really listening. But Jews came from Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch here, where they had been before, been kicked out, and Iconium, where the threat on their life was, and having won over the multitude, so the antagonists did not give up. They followed them. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, you want to talk about feast and famine? You know, pro athletes know how crowds are. You can hit a home run, and they're, ah, you're our hero. They'll hold up a sign for you. Then you strike out, ooh, ooh, right? Throw him out of town. Get the bum out of here. Can you imagine? 
You went from being called to God. He's Zeus. He's Hermes to give me a rock. Wow, people are fickle. And all of a sudden, rocks start flowing at Zeus and Hermes. They're not really that, but you know what I'm saying. And it didn't take long. And I remember on a Palm Sunday, there was another one that rode into Jerusalem, and the people said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, and the palm branches were going, and praises were being sung, and in that same week, that crowd said, being embittered and poisoned by religious leaders, crucify him. Why? Because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Same for this crowd. We want you to be Zeus and you to be Hermes, and you're going to do it our way because this is our tradition. They said, no, 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 no. We're men. We're pointing you to Christ. Oh, we don't like that. Here's a rock. That's how people are in America. We want it our way. We're told that that's the way it should be, is our way, not God's way. You're going to line up with my theology, man, and the moment you don't, you're out of here. And so they stone Paul, and this would be a bloody, terrible thing. Can you imagine as the first rock flew at Paul, he must have been thinking back to the stoning of Stephen when people laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul and, and Saul gave approval to it and now rocks are flying his way. Boom, boom, being hit with rocks. Can you imagine that? Having a huge crowd all throwing rocks at you and one after another after another he was hit and hit and hit again and finally... They said he's dead. And they dragged him out of their city. It wasn't enough that they stoned him. They dragged him out of the city. And they said, that, that dude's dead. Good riddance. See you later. Obviously, he's not a god. And I'm, I don't know what god he's talking about, but I don't know where that god is now. Because he's dead. Right? 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells a story he says, I know a man in Christ who about 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Many scholars believe that the stoning at Lystra was what Paul's referring to in 2 Corinthians 12, that when he was hit with these rocks, he had what we call in modern times a near-death experience. But Paul wasn't just dead. He was caught up to a place that he called what? Paradise or heaven. You know, in the movie Field of Dreams, you remember the scene when the dad, uh, it's Kevin Costner realizes that his dad has been the catcher and this has all been about him and his dad and reconciliation. And the dad looks at Kevin Costner and says, is this heaven? And Kevin in that famous line says, no, it's Iowa. <laughs> and then he says, is there a heaven? And the dad says, oh yeah. It's the place where dreams come true. It's a great scene. And in that moment when we're watching a movie, we think, you know what? Is there a heaven? And you know, Jesus and Paul and the others said, 
oh yeah, it's called paradise. And when you close your eyes on this side, if you know Christ, you'll be with him and those you love forever. And there's Paul on the ground, and I'm sure the disciples are standing over him, whoever is in that city, uh, including Barnabas. And while they stood around him, maybe thinking about, what do we do with his body? Where do we bury him? He arose. Look at verse 20. And what did he do? He entered the city? I tell you what, I don't care how hurt I was, I would not be going back to Lystra. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. So I'll tell you a quick story. We had an evangelism team go out, and they went into a neighborhood, and the initial reaction in door-to-door evangelism was the husband said, no, I don't want to hear what you have to say. But the wife came running out of the house and ran down this evangelism team and said, I want to hear what you have to say. And they were able to share the gospel with her and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. So the initial reaction was not that positive, but there was someone in that dwelling that desperately wanted to hear what they had to share. And when she heard it, she responded to the gospel and her soul was saved. And so that's part of, that's a, that's a great illustration that sometimes you're going to get some negative response, but you're going to get to those people whom the Lord has prepared and they're prepared to say yes to him. And what a beautiful thing that is. You know, heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance, just one. The angels rejoice, heaven rejoices, which implies that God rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. And the way people come to repentance and belief in Christ is obviously through the preaching of the gospel. And so Acts 14, especially the early part of the chapter here, is another uh, illustration of doing that and then seeing the fruit of that. And we're not going to see the fruit of something we don't do, but as we do it, as we preach the gospel, God will be faithful to do what he does, which is he already has imbued the gospel with his power, and it will draw people to himself. So there you have it from Acts chapter 14. And the, I think the question that we should be asking ourselves is how are we doing with that? Are we going out with a heart to share? Are we going out looking to exploit some opportunities? Um, I was just in an establishment earlier before I got on this microphone and a young man had a cross on and it looked like an older cross. And I asked him about the cross. I asked him, You know, um, that looks like an older cross. Was it passed down? And he said, yeah, from many generations. And then the next logical question was, um, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And he said, well, I'm kind of checking it out. I'm kind of trying to get there. And I asked him, have you been to church? And he said, not yet. And so it was an opportunity to at least extend an invitation uh, and to have him think a little bit more about his spiritual life. And it's obvious that God's already doing a work there. So... Those are the kinds of things that we're talking about. We're talking about exploiting opportunities uh, for the sake of the gospel.